Welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. If you're listening, you're listening today to a special episode of my podcast. That's a special episode as a tribute to my dear friend, Michael Brooks, who died suddenly of a health complication on July 20th. He was 36 and just coming into the prime of his career as a rising star in progressive politics. And in 2011, Michael and I co-wrote a book on meditation called The Buddha's Playbook. It was an attempt on our part to update the language of meditation to be relevant to a fully engaged life. And I'm not going to speak to that book here. I don't want this memorial tribute to be laced with uh, infomercial. But if you're interested in that book and the guided meditations that go with it, there will be a link in the show notes. And all proceeds from our book will go directly to the foundation that Michael's family establishes in his name. But for this episode, I imagine two potential audiences tuning in. There will be the folks from my audience who are coming from the yoga and meditation space. And there will be some folks listening in from Michael's audience. So to my audience, and really to me that means my spiritual family here, I want you guys to learn about who my friend and brother Michael Brooks was. The arc of his life was an achievement on many levels, but it was especially a spiritually engaged journey that was speaking truth to power. To anyone joining in from Michael's audience, I just want to say welcome. I'm really, I've been blown away by your outpouring of love for him. And in speaking directly to you, I hope to share a friend's sense of who Michael was, as incomplete as this sketch will inevitably be. And I hope to share some of a few of the influences that I think shaped the man who Michael became. But I should preface all this by saying that I won't be directly addressing Michael's politics. Many others have already done that far better than I ever could. And I'll link to Sam Cedar's tribute in the majority report, and that will give you a sense of that side of Michael. But here I want to open up uh, a personal glimpse. And I do this uh, out of a sense of, of duty and honor in that I see how deeply he was loved. And loving him that deeply myself, I would, I would be interested in the things I'm going to be sharing. So this episode will go live on Michael's birthday, August 13th. And this evening, uh, also coordinated to go live on Michael's birthday, I'll be having a discussion with Robert Wright. Robert Wright wrote, uh, he was the author of Non-Zero and a book called Why Buddhism is True. And that conversation will be live streamed over YouTube through Bob's channel, meaningoflife.tv. The reason for this conversation tonight is that Bob had been scheduled to be on Michael's show, the Michael Brooks show, we were scheduled to be on that show the week after Michael tragically died. Michael had wanted Bob to talk about cognitive empathy and, and sort of the role that cognitive empathy, empathy played in overcoming tra- uh, tribalism. And Bob and I decided that it made sense to honor the spirit of that conversation or that intended conversation. 
So he and I will be exploring cognitive empathy, the role it plays in transcending tribalism and how mindfulness can support that transcendence. And we'll also be joined tonight by Michael's mother to hear how she saw Michael's thinking on empathy and compassion intersecting in politics. Now that conversation will be recorded and it will be distributed through this podcast and Bob's podcast called The Right Show. So if, if you miss this live stream, don't worry. There will be ways to hear it. And I think that's it for my intro here. I'll just say two final things from the outset. First, thank you for listening to this. I really feel that Michael helped me pull all this together, so it feels like something he would want you to hear. That said, any errors that are contained here are mine alone. And second, I want to dedicate this episode to Michael's family to his parents, Donna and Glenn, to his sister, Alicia, and also to his family of colleagues, Sam, Dave, Matt, and Anna, to name just a few. Okay, here's my take on the Dharma of Michael Brooks. say from the outset how strange it is to hear these words leave my mouth now. You see, the following reflections were all meant to fill the pages of toasts and speeches for rosier days. Wedding roasts, lifetime achievement awards, stuff like that. But not this all-too-early elegy for my younger brother Michael Jamal Brooks. Of course, Michael wasn't my biological brother, but from the moment we met at the beginning of what was for both of us our first silent meditation retreat, my life turned a page. It was December of 2001. It was the aftermath of 9-11. He was 18 and I was a decade his senior. Within the first minutes of hellos and other pleasantries, we were instantly hip deep in analysis of Ken Wilber's model of integral theory. And until then, I had a hard time finding anyone that had ever even heard of Ken Wilber, let alone someone who had digested and assimilated the majority of Wilber's eight to 900 page tomes. But Michael at 18 was fluent and insightful with it all. Soon, however, it, it really did become clear that Michael's knowledge extended far beyond developmental spiritual theory I recognized an insatiable mind when I saw it, and after that first tea, before the retreat officially began, I came to the somewhat worrisome conclusion that Michael knew as much or more about literature, psychology, history, and politics as anyone I'd ever met. Oh, and I, it, is, it is worth mentioning that he also casually dropped the sort of the unironic aspiration to run for president someday, or at the very least, the Senate. And fair play, I thought. I mean, why not? He's only 18. And when we connected again after that first retreat, in civilian clothes, as it were, our love, and, and for I, I don't really have a better word to approximate our friendship, but our love, it deepened in shared comedy. Whenever he'd visit in Boston, we'd spend hours on the back porch, sipping boxed wine, 
and to a casual passerby it must have appeared to be the distressing antics of two men obviously suffering from a mutual mental affliction. There we were, hour after hour, howling like hyenas at the moon, while the cast of the Jerky Boys, the cast of the Ali G Show, casts of obscene characters and more, all paraded and offended their way through our casual chats. Martin Amos said this of his late friend Christopher Hitchens, quote, With all my other friends, however dear and however old, I would always tailor what I said a little bit to them, as one does in just the natural cause of things, but with him not, um, that I could admit to the most shameful thoughts, the most ingenious obscenities, etc., without ever feeling I could possibly turn him off in any way, and I knew he felt that too." End quote. And for about nine years, that was how it was. With a phone call or last-minute visit, Michael, for Michael was incapable of planning, he'd sweep me into his cackling universe. And if you know Michael already, then you already know about his comic genius. And I'll have a bit more to say about that. But around the time of the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008-2009, Michael came to me with a business pitch. We were both very much struggling to get by at this point. My acupuncture and yoga business had nearly gone belly up in the recession, and uh, Michael had yet to really make any serious inroads in his own career at that point. And for our business, what Michael wanted to do, he saw us creating a strategic consulting group, or a group of two. And his idea was to combine the insights of the new field of behavioral economics with the practice of mindfulness meditation to help, quote, individuals and organizations perceive and think more strategically, end quote. The basic idea from behavioral economics, as announced in a book of this title, is that humans invariably act in ways that are predictably irrational. That was the first book we read, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. And the reason, the reason for this predictable irrationality is primarily because we all have buggy cognitive distortions or cognitive biases. And these muddy a clear perception of any situation. And without clear perception, a clear strategy is simply a non-starter. So our solution was mindfulness. We train people, or we would train people, in straightforward ways in how to strengthen their capacity to see clearly. The phrase Michael always used, and I can't remember if it was his or someone else's, but the phrase uh, Michael would use often is that we were cultivating a capacity for, quote, panoramic specificity. Panoramic specificity. For us, mindfulness meditation was a way to train the mind to be both panoramically broad, that is better able to perceive as much of the whole as possible, and coupling that with a specificity to nuance that was sensitive to context and relationship. Our theory, and there actually have been some studies that have suggested some credence to this idea, but our theory back then was that the more someone could steady themselves within this perception of panoramic specificity, then they'd be less vulnerable to the buggy biases that led to bad decisions and outcomes. It was really a pretty cool and I thought clever little idea he had. But we were broke and getting it off the ground was, was tough sledding. But Michael's ambition taught me how to hustle. And soon I was able to create an opportunity for us to guest teach in a positive psychology class at Boston University. 
I had taught mindfulness there before with my friend Amy Baltzell in her class on positive psych, and she was very open to having Michael and I test drive our theories and practices on her students over a four-week period in the summer of 2009. I had generated a basic outline of topics and themes and also outlined who or who between us would deliver what, what content. Generally, Michael was to cover the theory, he was kind of the brains, and I'd cover the meditation application. I'd make it relevant and, and, and operational, if you will. And I didn't give it a second thought. Michael's plan in general was that we could leverage our university endorsement to attract angel investors. Back then, and, and still now, I, I don't have a sense or really a clear understanding of what an angel investor is, but I think I got the gist. And the gist was, Michael and I, in his mind, were going places. He had really big visions. I was broke, he had the brains, and I was a willing accomplice. And it seemed like we were sailing towards success, until we weren't. On that first day at the university, a dark cloud in an otherwise cloudless sky crept onto stage. Now, for those of you who know Michael, this is going to sound fictitious, if not slanderous. But I assure you, I'm wrapping this in only the most modest of hyperbole. But when Michael stood to deliver his first lecture that day, what happened was nearly incomprehensible to me. Incomprehensible on a number of levels. But I had never seen Michael so out of sorts. His speech was wooden, it was disjointed, chaotic, it didn't really make sense. He seemed very anxious. And I had to quickly jump in with kind of the gallant save. And afterwards, I, I tried to reassure him. I said, no biggie, you know, first time out, first time out of the gate. Everyone's a little rattled. We'll get it back next week. And he apologized. He said, yep, uh, don't know what was going on. I think I got some allergies. We'll be tight next week, bro. We fist pumped it. There was a booyakasha, and we were back, and all was fine. Until the next week when it happened again. Only my sympathy sank as his wobbly presentations really seemed more and more to do with just poor preparation. But it really was hard to say what was going on with him then. All I could tell was that the storm cloud that appeared on stage was now moving to center stage and the bolts and buckets were coming. A few months after the BU course, our consultancy had indeed run aground. Our book, The Buddha's Playbook, we got that produced and it was self-published. But the next level John Kabat-Zinn meets Andy Puttycomb duo, we had split. Michael went back to the Berkshires. I re-energized my acupuncture and yoga teaching. And within, within a year or so, the cracks had sealed over in our friendship and the scar of our schism was healing. Things were okay. But in the second nine years of my relationship with Michael, I witnessed an incredible shift. I mean, from the beginning, it was clear he, that he had the hardware. No one could deny that. The guy had a unique genius. But something in the software was a little bit buggy, where simple functions were slow or jammed. It's, it's, it's hard to describe. But my sense is, in that year after we broke up, in that fallow year. I think he dove deep into his psychological, 
process his wounds and his anxieties. And I think that in confronting them, he was able to transform their crippling energy into a generative creative energy that he literally sailed to the stars with just now. For as soon as he hit New York, I saw my old friend turbocharged, gunning for it and crushing it. In a short time, in a really brief, brief short period of time, he established himself as one of the leading voices in progressive politics, not just in the U.S., but the world over. And this comparison may be a bit over the top, but please indulge me a good friend's excesses. You see, I love jazz. I've always loved jazz. And one of my favorite jazz stories of all time is the story of Charlie Parker, the bebop sax player who redefined how we heard and played music. When the teenage Charlie Parker stepped onto Count Basie's stage in 1937, he did not take the jazz world by storm. Initially, Parker was so bad, he was so out of tune and so out of time, that he inspired the band's drummer, Joe Jones, to come to a grinding halt, stopping in the middle of the song and literally throwing one of his cymbals at Parker's feet to clear him from the stage. It was mortifying. Parker quickly left the club and allegedly on his way out the door said something like, I'll be back. And after a year of deep seclusion, of practicing or shedding for hours and hours a day, Parker did indeed return a year later. And as The Guardian put it, quote, not only, he returned not only to square things with doubters, but to show everybody with an open mind and open ears a new kind of 20th century music making, end quote. I know it's a little self-regarding here to claim Joe Jones' status and Michael's story, but pause for a moment and just imagine, imagine if Michael's mind and heart had become a shill to the corporate wellness industry. No co-hosting with Sam Cedar, no The Michael Brooks Show, just updated Deepak Chopra. Let that sink in for a moment. Because Michael did reemerge, and when he did reemerge, he not only squared things with his doubters, but showed anyone with an open mind and an open heart a new kind of 21st century progressive politics. And through the channels of the Majority Report with Sam Cedar and his own show, The Michael Brooks Show, I think he was polishing and refining a new category of public intellectualism. I like to imagine it to be something like the awakened public satirist. At the Insight Meditation Society, the retreat center where Michael and I first met, in the kitchen, I remember there being a poem taped to a doorway that read something like this. A falling leaf does not scream along its great journey to earth. Yes, he fell too soon, and I deeply mourn his lost life, literally the unlived years we all lost of him. But Michael's life was a comet's journey, brief and blazing. As some of you know, I'm an acupuncturist too, and Chinese medicine is really a holistically modeled understanding of health that recognizes the very obvious connections between the individual's microcosm of existence and how that individual internal microcosm intersects 
within the macrocosm totality of everything else within existence. Put simply, you could say Chinese medicine sees correspondences between the elements of the environment with the internal elements of the individual. And of all the multiplicity of elements that there is in nature, the Chinese seem to have boiled them all down to five archetypical elements, known as the five elements, or five element theory. And the five archetypical elements each have their own unique constellation of strengths and weaknesses that get distributed through all levels of one's being, mainly through the physical, energetic, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual levels. And most people, most people tend to have a blend of a few elements. And in, this, and in these cases, no dominant trait of a particular element stands out. But every now and then, you get a person that is the archetype of that element in flesh and blood. And there, that element's archetype then strongly determines that person's physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual health and capacity, both in flourishing and in, and in pathology. From a Chinese medical perspective, I think Michael's constitution was fire dominant. I think he had some other elements in the mix, but fire was clearly dominant. His wit, his mimicry, his rapacious intellect, and his giant heart, and his unbelievable ab ability to improvise through all of it. This was all connected with the element of fire but also his psychology, all of his huge love of life and love of everyone he met. That is all fire types blazing hot and bright. It's beautiful. But fires also suffer from anxiety. And as someone who also struggles with anxiety, I could see it in my little brother. Physically too, the element of fire uh, in the Chinese model is connected to the, the energy of the heart, the organ of the heart which is similar to Western medicine in that it is intimately connected with the vascular system. And there are certain conditions in Chinese medicine where too much fire is said to literally cook the blood, which can, not always, but can lead to clots, which is how Michael died. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was anything that could have been done to alter the fate of Michael's life. I'm simply suggesting how a structurally holistic model of medicine, in this case traditional Chinese medicine, might be helpful in understanding his constitutional proclivities. And for my two cents, Michael had a lot of fire in him. It was the source of his visionary light, the source of his romping joy, the source of his unwavering love. And Michael's love as a friend and as a citizen of this world was really extraordinary. In remembering him, I've been struck again and again by how supportive he was whenever I navigated choppy waters. And with regret, I now see how asymmetric that support was. And yet his was unconditional. I'm also struck by how we would speak in our own code, our own unique vernacular of love, composed of inside jokes, obscure references stacked upon obscure references. Now, many friends tend to do this, I know. But Michael took it to the extreme, and I saw him perfecting the double-layered impersonation, refracting one caricature through that of another caricature. With me, his favorite was to always impersonate a, a pickup artist guru named David D'Angelo, or this guy was sometimes called David D. 
He was an online personality that coached guys how to be better pickup artists. And Michael and I just found that hilarious, and Michael would do David D. impersonating me. And David D. talked like this. After all, David D. had game. David D. could pull. David D. had expertise at cold calling women. He had gotten that area of his life under control, and he could teach others how to get that area of their lives together. And every time Michael would call me or leave a voicemail, for years it was some variation of this, him mocking the tone and style of my acupuncture business's outgoing voicemail as David D. Hi, this is Josh Summers. If you'd like to book an appointment for acupuncture, you've come to the right place. I specialize in healing a person's energy system. It's crucial for your health and well-being to balance and harmonize your energy system. Now, most of my clientele happen to be hot yoga chicks for the simple reason that hot yoga chicks are more in tune with their own energy systems. So book a session with me and we'll get your energy system in tune soon. And on and on it went like that. He was the only person who could mock you to to your core while you'd be laughing, incapacitated in spasms and tears. And I used to think that ours was a unique love. But in seeing all the tributes his friends and colleagues have so wrenchingly given to him, I'm left to conclude that Michael had this level of connection with nearly everyone that he loved. And in many ways, I find that comforting. I find it comforting to know that so many were lucky enough to experience what I experienced. So Michael was fire at every level of his being. His was a blinding, blazing cannonball of fire. And at 36, we had him a year longer than we had Mozart. At 36, we had him for two years longer than we had Charlie Parker. Again, please forgive a good friend's excesses, but would you prefer a shooting star to remain timid, only blinking in some forgotten corner of the sky? For me, the answer is no, and Michael's life was a perfection itself. When I saw the photograph of Michael's triumphant embrace with Lula da Silva, the former president and political prisoner of Brazil, I saw the realization of Michael's apotheosis. And later, when I watched Michael interview the left's intellect emeritus, Noam Chomsky, I also saw my precocious friend standing on the great man's coattails. Of course, time will tell how history looks upon Michael's life. But as with any great life, I've always had a, I've personally always had a rich fascination with um, the artistic development and process of the individual. I like to know things like, where do they eat a lot? What do they like to read? What do they listen to? How do they exercise? I want to know their primary habits and sources. What text do they read over and over again? What influences shape their perception and view? So in that vein, I'd like to mention three potential primary source thinkers in their books that I think had a strong influence on the man Michael became. These three are what I'm calling the triple gem of Michael Brooks's Dharma. Again, 
This is just my list of the things he and I talked about a lot. And this, inter- this does intersect with his politics, but this is definitely not a political list. His sister Leisha, or his mother or father, or any of his other colleagues could generate completely different lists than mine. But in terms of his spiritual worldview, I think these three weave, the three things I'm going to mention here, weave together potentially some of the core themes of Michael's Dharma. And all three that I'm going to mention will be listed in the show notes with the books that I'm referencing here. So the first candidate of the triple gem of Michael's Dharma, I think, is the philosopher I mentioned earlier, Ken Wilber. Wilber can be thought of as a map maker of existence, or maybe a kind of existential cartographer. And in addition to providing a map, Wilbur also tries to identify key practices that an individual or group can use to deepen their connection, understanding, and health with regards to all aspects of experiences that are represented on the map. To get into Wilbur's full theory would take, well, something like an 800-page book. Um, But I do recall Michael always appreciating a simplified rendering of his model. It also happens to be the very first book that I read of Wilbur's, and it's called The Marriage of Sense and Soul. And one of the many themes of Wilbur's thinking that I think may have animated Michael's spiritual vision was the way that Wilbur described a highly evolved but ever-present state of spiritual realization called unity consciousness or non-dual awareness. And the thing about accessing this dimension of consciousness is that it literally changes one's felt sense and experience of who and what they are. Put simply, you could say we often operate um, from a perception that we are one small locus of consciousness within a field of other objects that are all somehow external to that locus of consciousness. So, for example, the, the book, any book, the book is over there and I'm here. The book is out there, and I'm here. There's a conscious, subjective me here knowing an object or the book out there. That's normal. <clears throat> that's what is often referred to as normal dualistic consciousness. There's an, a subject here and an object out there. But from the experience of non-duality, and and. Please remember, it's called non-duality because subject-object duality can collapse, whereby all that is left is a unified experience of everything being in and as you. Everything you experience is literally you. You're no longer just a collection of events occurring within your own sack of skin. Consciousness consciousness is no longer a contracted experience separate from the objects it sees. Rather, consciousness is experienced as an identity itself. It's an identity that's inseparable from anything it experiences. Now, in this awareness, the former little you, the identity that you form from the experiences of your body and mind and histories and narratives, all of that stuff is seen as a kind of a passing cloud pattern within the sky-like nature of your consciousness. And this may seem or sound like a strange spiritual abstraction, or it even may sound like a kind of a deep-packed Chopra platitude. But I do know, for Michael, that he saw the capacity of individuals and collectives to shift into this unity consciousness. 
he saw that shift as being vital to the promotion of sustainable systems of production and governance. It wasn't just a matter of reforming technological, educational, environmental, and political systems. Yes, I can hear him saying material conditions matter, but the individuals who occupy these systems are always scattered across a spectrum of human consciousness. Some stages in that spectrum, <clears throat> some stages are marked by extreme greed and solipsistic narcissism. And the higher stages of that spectrum, the higher stages tend to be marked by traits of things like universal love or compassion and generosity. But I think that for Michael, <clears throat> the idea was that with better systems, if the better systems didn't also, if the better systems weren't accompanied by better levels of consciousness, within those systems, then the new better systems would be sort of vulnerable to the potential excesses of greed, hatred, and delusion of the, the beings with consciousness within those systems. And this is where I, I saw him being incredibly brave, I think, in bringing spirituality in a non-bullshit way right into the heart of the progressive movement. And I do know that this line of thinking <clears throat> can carry with it a kind of whiff of utopic thinking. But if you've ever had a taste of unity consciousness yourself, either through meditation or flow states or psychedelics, it is a taste one tends to want more of in life because there's something about that state of consciousness that is just intrinsically healing. And I think I, think I sensed all of this in Michael's development as a thinker, as an activist, and as a pundit, he could hold the relative predicament of the individual, vowing, as they say in Zen, to liberate all sentient beings. His compassion on the ground was motivated to liberate all sentient beings, the bodhisattvic vow. But I also saw him engaging more and more from kind of an ultimate level, which is articulated in the paradox of some Zen traditions, and I'll paraphrase it here, but, but right next to the vow to liberate all sentient beings is the paradoxical vow to realize that there are no sentient beings to be saved. And I'll try to just explain what that might mean. <clears throat> I think it's suggesting that from, from the perspective of unity consciousness, remember, in, in unity consciousness, all there is is an identity with the totality of experience. And in that, there is nothing separate from that unified experience. So therefore, there are no separate beings outside of the unified field. From the perspective of unity consciousness, there, is simply, there are simply no separate beings from oneself. And I know that I'm speculating here, but I do sense that Michael's own identity was rooting more and more in the perception of this unified totality. Not as an idea of the totality, so that's just a construct, but really is a living, breathing truth of absolute identity. So obviously, there are many other spiritual thinkers and writers that influenced him, but I do think Wilbur is someone Michael would want his fans to check out, I think. Now, the second part of Michael's dharma was, of course, his humor. And many have already given searing tributes to Michael's talent as a comedian. His colleague, Sam Cedar, Nailed it, and, and I paraphrase, but Sam said it would take 20 writers a few hours to polish one good joke for someone like Conan O'Brien. And somehow, 
Michael could spontaneously improvise the same caliber of jokes one mirth-drenched moment to the next. And obviously, he had many influences. But one that I think I would like to draw your attention to was Michael's lifelong love of the comic writer P.G. Woodhouse. So P.G. Woodhouse was a 20th century British comic comic writer, and he was the guy, the author that gave us Worcester and Jeeves. You can read anything with Jeeves in the title, and you're off to a good start. And I should say that at first glance, Woodhouse might just seem like pure silliness. Uh, many of the stories are tales of a bumbling British aristocrat getting himself tied in knots, knots that only his sagacious butler Jeeves can untie. Really, a Woodhouse story in some ways is just pure silliness, tripping and slipping over still more silliness. All the while, though, all the while gliding gently over the, some of the most painful or challenging, tricky dimensions of the human condition. And whether Woodhouse inspired this in Michael or not, I can't really say. But this was Michael's gift, too. Michael saw the humor in everything. So much so that it seems everyone that knew him well is now hearing in their own heads all the jokes he'd be making about his own death. For Michael, I think, I think for Michael, humor facilitated a connection to life, but particularly a connection to things that were painful. Often there's a kind of reflexive recoiling from pain but I saw Michael using humor as a way to sustain a focused connection to pain, whether it be to painful ideology or personality or painful systemic dis dynamic or dysfunction. And I saw Michael using his humor to steady a connection to pain so that that connection could transform the pain into compassion. And it was the compassion then that redeems the pain. So in some ways, Michael's humor was a healing humor, for the most part. It was a salve that we could all slather ourselves in from time to time. And I recently uh, flipped open the last Woodhouse book I remember seeing in Michael's hand called Leave It to Smith. And the funny thing there is that Smith is spelled with a capitalized P that's silent. So Leave It to Smith. And when I opened it, a line leapt out at me that seemed perfectly tailored to this address. It read, all the other thinkers of the age are simply in a crowd watching you go by. And that brings me to my third and final candidate for their primary sources to include in the triple gem of Michael's Dharma. To my mind, the voice that best fuses the awakened mind-heart of non-duality that Wilbur was writing about, the voice that combines that with the kind of the effervescent and redemptive comedy of P.G. Woodhouse. The voice that ties those two threads, for me at least, is the 14th century Persian Sufi mystic, Hafiz. Hafiz composed thousands of poems, and they all seem to boom from non-dual unity consciousness. But they're also laced, and this is where I think they're like Michael's style, they're also laced with the subversive comedy of the court jester. So here's Hafiz in his poem, Stop Being So Religious. What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past, 
and often go there and do a strange wail in worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. And I know Michael wouldn't want any of us to be so religious like that. He and I used to joke about who in the world of fame we might parallel. It's the sort of ridiculous joking or the way of joking that only occurs to the precociously grandiose. And in one iteration of this grandiosity, I fancied myself as Martin Amos, the quieter, more retiring, dim bulb of the pair. And Michael, Michael, you, of course, were the hitch with your rakish good looks and charisma, your stiletto tongues, your exuberant exaltations. Both of you gone far too soon, and all of us left, myself and Martin included, left with your cathedrals of jokes resounding in our heads while the two of you are there enjoying your Johnny Walker. With that, I'll give the final word to Martin. When Christopher died, it was a disaster, a numbing disaster. But the immediate result has been a dramatic increase in love of life because his was so intense, superior to mine, I always thought. Your very closest friends, when they die, they bequeath to you their love of life. That it becomes your solemn duty to love life as much as they did because they are no longer capable of feeling that love. That's the sort of religion that Michael bequeathed to me, to all of us. The solemn duty to love life as much as he did. Michael always called me a constipated writer. So for the third and final time, please forgive me my excesses.